2: The well,
3: um, thanks for coming and thanks for listening. Now, this obviously looks a little bit like um, uh, uh, an inside job because um, the author of the book we're about to talk about mm. is in fact um, the co-presenter of Word in urea So, a very <laughs> tough negotiation, quite quite a difficult uh, business to persuade <laughs> him to do this. But uh, let me first uh, introduce our, our August panel who are here to help us discuss this book, and uh, we have the uh, fantastic writer and broadcaster and former member of the Word magazine Woo-hoo! team. Jude Rogers. Sorry. (laughs) Please give her a a warm welcome. Who you will, I'm sure, recognize from the portrait painted uh, of her by Chrissy Hine that appeared in The Observer this weekend. (laughs) And we also have the equally fantastic uh, broadcaster and Beatles obsessive, fellow Beatles obsessive, Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Now, the title of the book is Nothing Is Real. And uh, it's subtitled why the Beatles were underrated and other sweeping statements about pop and has various compelling theories. It's all about the drummer. Why 60s rock stars never give up. Uh, Seven things I would tell a young band, a cautionary tale. Uh, Why some acts don't make it, music that you should, or more importantly, shouldn't play at weddings and funerals. Those two theories we are going to discuss this evening, along with some other uh, theories from this book, and theories from the panel. But the problem for me is that I've known the author of this book for 41 years, and I have never won an argument with him. So, um, you know, what we call theories, he calls facts. So, uh, yeah, please welcome your very own David Hepworth.
2: Hey!
0: Yeah well well dave this it's thrilling to be here mark <laughs> we're both rather out of our comfort zone we've switched sides yeah, absolutely because i normally i'm i'm hidden behind mark's vast present <laughs>
3: <laughs> now this this book you've had two books out already 1971 and you've had uncommon people i heard you on the danny baker show uh the weekend uh, very very uh, energetic a performance it was
0: too, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I managed to snap Danny well, out of his customary torpor. Torpor, <laughs> and get him, a, a you know, give him. Uh, you know. woke him up.
3: Yeah, but you said that you described the first two books as being, uh, 1971 and Uncommon People, as being like uh, LPs, and this being like a ten-inch album. This is a 10 So inch. what do you, you mean by is it like a, it's not a greatest hits? it's a ten-inch it, it, album.
0: The, well, the, I suppose there's a series of, you know, the, the first book, uh, you know, Never a Dull Moment about 1971, second book, Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rockstar. And then the, the, the third book is actually coming out fourth. It's coming out next year. There'll be a book about something else. Um, but this is a, is a bit of a, a staging post, I suppose, and it 's a, it's a, a combination of loads of different stuff it 's some stuff that may be completely new to you unless you 're in the habit of listening to Radio three late at night, which I fancy you 're probably not mark and, and you know many people aren 't because I did a number of essays for Radio Three, and God bless Radio Three because they are one of the few places in British broadcasting where they will let you just You know, you have an essay and a written piece that you then read and it's 14 minutes long or something like that. And so that's where the title of the book, Nothing Is Real, comes from because a lot of those are about the the subject of kind of authenticity in pop music. And then there's some stuff that originally appeared in Word and has been reworked. And then there's some stuff that's completely fresh. For instance, there's Everything I Know About Rock TV... Which I'm sure you'll be enthralled to read as well. (laughs) uh, I just looked in the index to see if my name appeared. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And um, it's very interesting that this should come out this week of all weeks because I'm told, although I haven't seen it myself, that I actually appear played by an actor in the Freddie Mercury film... (gasps)
2: No, oh, you
3: do. Yeah. A, a guy apparently looks exactly like Timmy Mallet. <laughs> <laughs> he has he has
0: enormous. You spectacles. had to say that. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't approach me to see if it's okay, you know. Uh, but so so apparently wow. some do you have a speaking part. I don't believe so. No. Apparently somebody looks sitting there looking puzzled next to Bob Geld. Next to the actor playing Bob Geldof, <laughs> as he kind of bangs the table and demands money. And so at least. If you buy my book, nothing is real. You get the proper story, the real story of, of what, what happened. actually happened and what Bob Geldof actually date, said, and what Bob Geldof actually said, which is not what everybody, not what everyone thinks he not said. what every cab driver in the world yeah. tells me he said. Yeah, anyway, that's So true. That's that's a kind of idea of the range of stuff. And there's some stuff from old
3: old uh, a couple of pieces from Word Magazine, I think.
0: There is. Yeah, yeah there's a piece, or about the blues. Yeah. In there, I can't remember. There's other, there's other short things. But there's also the, the kind of essay, essay, column, whatever you want to call it, that kind of starts off the book, which is my favourite theory, which is the Beatles were underrated. Which well, let,
3: let's start on a, that. Yes, yeah, so, so what, give, give us some uh, idea why you
0: think well, that's, that's true. I mean, that, that kind of is one of those things that started in the word office, and this will be familiar to Jews, yes. the yes. people in the word office... You know, I'm thinking about, obviously, myself and uh, the people like Andrew Harrison, when they were not, were not kind of backward no. in coming forward, <laughs> in no. saying, I think you'll find that the greatest record ever made is whatever it is. It you was know? very
1: hard to work there sometimes. You just sat back, Mark would go, right, I've got a story for you. We'd all push our chairs back, yeah. feet on the table, and yeah. just, you know, bask in it, really.
0: So, and one of the things people did was, was present the idea they always presented subjective ideas as objective facts. Yes.
3: Which I, I always really warned I to love that idea. That People <laughs> would say, I know what the greatest record in the world is. You'd say, no, I know this one, I know this. Don't tell me, don't tell me. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as if there is only
0: one answer. Which is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, so I, I wrote a piece for Word, uh, which, which was a very popular piece, I think, which was, you know, my theory, why the Beatles were underrated. And I think it started as one of those columns that you write, you know, you have to write under pressure. You've got to turn out 800 words by the following morning. So you better have an idea and you better be able to stand it up. And it's one of those ideas that the more I've thought about it in the years since, the more right I think I am. (laughs) You'll be surprised to hear. And, And I want to just tell you a brief story uh, there's a guy that, that Mark and I both used to work with years ago called Dominic Smith. And uh, and Dominic is significantly younger than us. And, uh, you know, so he's, he's more of the generation of kind of, I don't know, oasis and blur and so forth. And uh, I never forgot this. Years ago, he said to me, I think I'm going to buy a Beatles record. <laughs> he thought, oh, steady on, <Yeah."> They might just catch on. (laughs) And so he, you know, I saw him after the weekend. I said, Dom, did you buy a Beatles record? He said, yes. He said, I didn't like it very much. And I thought, I said, Dom, did you buy Let It Be? (laughs) He said, yes. How did you know? And I said, I know because you picked the record. ...whose cover has them looking most like members of Oasis. <laughs> and I think this is really... You know, I think it's quite a significant point... ...because I think the Beatles, you know... ...were kind of relaunched a number of times. Obviously after the death of John Lennon they were relaunched. Now they were kind of relaunched in the 90s... ...with the anthologies and all that kind of stuff. And that was around about the same time as Britpop... And I think for many people, they emerge from out of that strange, confusing moment as being a slightly superior version of Blur. (laughs) Which I can't help but think is rather underselling them. Grotesquely disrespectful. And if if you have the idea that that, um, there is that theory that in in, in show business generally, you've only got three years. You can spin it out a bit longer, but three years is what you've got keeping your inspiration bright. And so the Beatles had two three-year careers. Three years as lovable mop tops, singing songs about teen romance in the face of a hail of jelly babies and screams. And then three years as drug-taking psychedelic adventurers. And I think the bit of the Beatles that we're most comfortable with nowadays is a psychedelic adventurer's. Mm. We think that's all fine. That's all very six music. That's all very later with Jules Holland. We can understand that it's Friday night, you know, uh, you know, BBC Four. What we don't understand, and what, of course, because of my great age, I remember, because I was thirteen when all this happened, was the Beatles were a load of things that were wonderful that are now unfashionable, and so we don't recognise them sufficiently. For instance, you're going to ask me, Mark.
2: <laughs> for
0: instance? <laughs> they were a covers band. You know, they, were, they were, I would argue, the best wedding band that never played a, played a wedding for anybody ever. Because they could command a range of material. They could do something for the old people, something sentimental, something comical... You know, something raucous and rocking. They could do all which that stuff. They did stuff. In the Royal Variety Performance. Absolutely, what they did. Actually. Yeah. They also, I remember, they used to turn up and and croon with Malcolm and Wise. Yeah. You know, all those things that bands of that mm-hmm. kind of credibility, whatever, of which more later, nobody would dream of doing that nowadays. Yeah. The Beatles did that. They were completely in the mainstream of popular entertainment. They weren't alternative. Or anything like that. And um, also, I think they projected a quality that we're uncomfortable with nowadays. And that quality was happiness. I can remember this so clearly. I was talking to somebody about it today. You know, I was talking to somebody on the podcast and I had to pick a Beatles record. And I had to pick With the Beatles. And to, to think that they made With the Beatles in between She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand. Is just absolutely astonishing. And I can remember hearing our one-off on your hand on Thank You, Lucky Stars. So this is 1963 Christmas, is it something like that? And you thought you were almost going to cry with happiness. <laughs> just the sound of them, you know what I mean? The, the invigorating, extraordinary, kind of benign energy yeah. that they put out during that time when they were going at it too fast to think whether it was a good idea. Nobody was having second thoughts. They were just getting on with doing what they were doing. And I think that side of the Beatles is what we underestimate now. We underrate it. And if anything, we overrate the White Album. And I think this applies to popular music generally that we have a habit of taking people as seriously as they appear to take themselves. And so if pens are kind of chin-stroking and, you know, we tend to think that they have profound ideas. ABBA, we tend to think they don't have profound ideas at all. How do we know? You know what I mean? Oh. One, one is, you know, projecting happiness. But things it's very tilted against people who, who, who yeah, deal in happiness. It's, it's considered to be superficial, isn't it? I think so. And, yeah. and they don't get enough credit for it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that applies right across entertainment, isn't yeah. you know? <laughs> it? It lies with with comedy, and you know what? What's the greatest compliment you can pay anybody nowadays? And I, read, I think I read, there's a piece about that. This in the book also is people say things are dark and edgy. You know, that's yeah. the best thing you can say about anything. Why is that so great? Well. Generally, because the person saying it is forty-five years old and feels that the only way they can justify their continued interest in something that they liked when they were fourteen is to suggest it's somehow mature. It's not necessarily. But if they said that it made them feel wonderful, it, w- it would look uh, ridiculous. It wouldn't look slight. It wouldn't look fashionable. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. True. So you know, that's that's the core of my of my point about the Beatles. That um, you know, it's the it's the early. It's mop tops ahoy you know. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, you know that's that's where the joy of the Beatles is. Yeah, and I think if we if we lose our appreciation of that, you know, I think if you're too cool for that, you're too cool. And uh, you know, I think there's a danger of, of these things being kind of distorted in memory. You know yeah. what I mean? Because, and I suppose this happens to all pop music. Pop music nowadays is it all gets. Appreciated in retrospect, it's it's not to do with the time anymore, is it? You know what I mean? That they that the big audience gets to know about all this stuff years after it's happened.
1: I think there are some people who are appreciated now. I like say Robin, the Scandinavian yeah, yeah. pop star. Um, she's, But actually, she's got an email record. I've had great reviews. But that is actually about her being grown up and being a bit more mature and talking about grief and stuff. But I think her other records are a little bit more appreciated. I think because maybe a lot of the critics are, you know, a certain age and just are, I suppose as you do, that, you know, pop is great. There's nothing wrong with liking pop. I think that tide is turning. You know, ABBA absolutely have had... You know, it's probably an amazing piece of Paul Denoya wrote in a very early edition of Word about how ABBA should be reclaimed to this brilliant band full of songs that have profound ideas of them you know they sing about you know even before you we get to the visitors where they all look very dark and edgy on the album cover you've got Knowing Me Knowing You which is really sad and um, depressing um, but through this beautiful bouncy pop music you know you've got this stuff going on Um, where do
3: you stand on the idea that the
2: beatles are underrated
1: um i agree sadly there's some things later on i don't agree with um with dave but um i um thought i'd look online to see if there are any lists of worst beatles songs And i found this is why i've got my notebook because my memory is terrible um ultimate classic rock i'm sure it's a fantastic magazine whatever i'm not against them have a list of um the beatles albums in order of greatness so a bit like those conversations we used to have in the word office but the songs at the end uh, the, you know at the bottom of the pile are the early ones are they're the covers you know they were doing a cover hmm. they were an amazing covers band Absolutely. You know, um, this is the Beatles stuff that actually I play a lot now at home because I've got a uh, little boy who's four and a half who thinks all my loving is the greatest song in the world and he's wrong. Um, he probably he is. is yeah. Yeah. I do feel though, kind of sitting next to Jeff Lloyd. I think I should pass the floor to him. Really, but
2: I, so. I can't believe there's a list of worst Beatles songs because there, there is only one bad Beatles song. Oh, oh go, go, on, on. go on, Piggies. Oh no, no, I dig a pony. No, nothing wrong with and I Miss Dig a Mr. Pony. And Love
3: Me Do isn't very good, but no, Piggies is rotten.
2: Yeah, Piggies, piggies is I awful. I Dig a Pony But terrible. Mr Moonlight, people always talk about that as being the terrible Beatles song, but this, it's great being able to hear John Lennon's voice a cappella at the beginning of it, before the sort of Blackpool Tower organ kicks in. That's right. I think just, just his voice sounds really yeah, good yeah. on that intro. Do you want to know
1: some more from this list? Yeah. Um, Till what? There Was You, what's wrong with that?
2: Yeah. Nothing wrong with that
1: at all. Um, don't Bother Me, you know, kind of George got better writing songs, he said... Um, your mother should know. I'm sorry. That is fantastic, and the way it harmonises, they harmonise in that.
2: And um, that scene from Magical Mystery Tour, oh as my they descend goodness. the staircase. Yeah,
1: fantastic. With the girls, at the end of that. My four and a half year old is definitely heterosexual because he loves that bit the best. Um, <laughs> but um, I, uh, my relationship with the Beatles um, is quite funny because I did a, G- a GCSE in music and I did NA level in music. I've got grade eight in violins, so all this kind of musical training and technique, whatever that I don't write about ever, because you don't do that in music journalism quite rightly. Um, but one of my set texts for my music GCSE uh, was the Help album. And we had to, you know, analyse, you know, how their music was put together. Uh, but I had a really good teacher who said, you know, they weren't musically trained. They didn't, you know, Paul McCartney couldn't, you know, write on the stave or whatever. But um, they had, you know, I learned at that age that they'd had this, you know, what what is it then, six years or seven years of, Playing together, when did they start playing together? 57? Yeah, yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, but they'd kind of absorbed so many different influences from different bands they were covering and styles they were taking in, and Paul's love of his father's record collection and all these stuff. So, they, this learning about music has so ingrained it. So, even though I was learning about you know the blues notes they put in here and the unusual way they harmonize on this particular track, it was really nice to think this is just. Soaked into them because of their love of it Completely. and their learning. Jeff, do you think
2: there's any anything that's underappreciated about them? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I genuinely think it's impossible to overrate the Beatles. <laughs> You know, unless you start talking about them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse or you know that kind of thing, I I think there's just brilliance in all those records. And I also think when you talk about a song like "I Want to Hold Your Hand" as being exuberant pop, which is 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 definitely part of it. There's definitely you know it's bottled joy. But I also think sort of at the time it didn't sound like anything else either. So it's it's they were still inventive when they were making records like that some, some, I'm not going to do this justice but somebody of a certain vintage said to, him, talk to me about hearing the Beatles for the first time and he was into his music and his, his kind of thing was music went dum 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 before the yeah. Beatles yeah. and then when the Beatles come along it goes da 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 and that's, yeah. that's, kind of the, that's kind of the difference yeah. sort of straight off the bat that you hear on that first album
1: I know who does overrate... The Beatles. Um, who th- The people who think the Beatles are overrated are Liverpudlians of a certain generation. And I'm, this is... Uh, not all of them. Um, Andrew Harrison, somebody who grew up in Liverpool and basically was sick to the back teeth of the Beatles. Um, John Dorian, who adds the quietest, hates the Beatles. I'm like, come on, you can't hate the Beatles. But I think it's because... You it's you just up the position the city, that there's... people
3: take up, isn't it, to draw attention to... But I think it's, it's also not you... possible today. I
1: think it's growing up in Liverpool... At a certain time, and you know their uh, Liverpudlian bands were, you know, the early '80s scene, really. Um, so it's almost a reaction against that idea, and they had this idea of these. It is a kind of mop top idea of the Beatles that they have as well. But yeah, if Andrew was here, you could. Uh, rip
2: I up have every out. sympathy <laughs> for people who want to rip up the generations' music that comes before them at the time. But it's it's still in this day and age they're saying, "Oh, Beatles shit! They were just a boy band." What's wrong a with boy you? Band, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: The thing that really strikes me <laughs> is that great is, boy band. The, is that the the <laughs> The way they always went the extra mile. I mean, I've been listening to them now for 50 years, wherever it is, and you still find these little tiny levels and layers of detail. Yeah. You know, you listen to Happiness is a Warm Gun and the way they spent 15 hours recording this, 95 takes to get this impossibly difficult time signatures to work Mm. together, to create music that was as eerie and destabilising as the lyric, you know, and they really felt it was worth seeing. George and Paul's favourite track on the White Album, you know. I'm listening to, um, you know, Penny Lane the other day. I worked out it was it's actually a four-act play, you know, in yeah. the first yeah. the first act you meet the barber, then you meet the banker in the second, and the third is the five, and then all three of them get together in the fourth one with the with the, the girl selling yeah. the poppies, you know. And um, you know, those those kind of extraordinary levels that they went to to produce
2: that extra, uh, you know, invention and creativity. And just it's that they kept changing it up as well. They never thought, oh, this is what we sound like and uh, yeah, this is yeah. how we do it. Well, but She's Leaving f- Home is another
3: one. It's, a, it's like a documentary. You know, She's Leaving Home, it struck me, it's, you've got the voice of the narrator telling you the story, you've got the camera view from the point of view of the girl leaving the note and slipping out at five o'clock in the morning, and then you've got little interviews, little talking heads with the parents mm, who come in and say, yeah. what did we do that was wrong? We, You know, we've, we've yeah. worked hard all our lives, etc." cetera. And it, the detail is absolutely astonishing. Yeah. I
1: think people get so used to hearing the Beatles all the time, you know, especially when you're in, your, you know, you a child or in your teens. If you're of my generation, I'm 40 now, um, that you can get to a point. where I think, I think I was probably a bit, a bit bored of the Beatles because I thought I'd heard them all. I've got to say, Jeff's amazing show, Beatles Brunch on Absolute Radio, which I used to was a kind of institution in my house. Um, uh, Dan and I used to put it on. My husband and I used to put it on every Sunday morning and just listen to it. And just listening to you know, it's not like the Beatles on Shuffle because it was curated, obviously, but could have just listened to all these different moments, organised in a different way, going, oh my God. Yeah, they were fantastic. But it's
2: the same band doing that stuff. It's mind yeah. blowing, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, we're
1: agreeing too much, though, aren't we? It's not good.
2: <laughs> well, let's <laughs> move, <gonna> on to <laughs> move on to no. Mark. We're going to move on to another theory.
3: This is here. Mark's theory. It's my theory, actually. Oh, wow. Which is that Bob Dylan's girlfriend changed bodies. Go on, tell oh, us about me Give me a, a, couple, of, a couple of things. Today. It goes like this that in July 1961. Um, Dylan, who was 20 at the time, played a concert in Harlem in a church on a live radio broadcast. And he met uh, afterwards the 18-year-old Susie Rotello. And uh, there's a lovely bit in Chronicles where he talks about, um, you know, he's instantly in love. You know, the air was full of banana leaves. You know, know, she's like a a Rodin sculpture come to life. And uh, it's just wonderful. And... He was a boy from Minnesota. He'd never met a girl like this. Incredibly hip, incredibly urban. Um, marched and campaigned against, uh, uh, for nuclear disarmament. She, she campaigned for racial equality. She'd been to Cuba, communist Cuba. Her parents were, were US uh, Communist Party members. And, you know, up till the point he'd met her, he was playing traditional blues and folk and Woody Guthrie and Jesse Fuller songs. And when he met her and started writing, had a three-year relationship. She's the girl who appears on the cover of Freewheeling Bob Dylan. He then wrote, um, you know, Blowing in the Wind, Masters of War, Hard Rain, God on Our Side, Times They Are changing uh, Hardship and Civil Rights, Songs, Oxford Town, North Country Blues, Hollis Brown, Hattie Carroll. Now, he wasn't the first protest singer but he was the first to take that into the mainstream and that's the reason that he was signed up to play on the uh, the um, you know washington rally with martin luther king and that image of dylan's the folk protest player the the the, the, the acoustic guitar and the, and the harmonica became it was so, it became so international that it became a symbol of how pop music was capable of a, of a deeper purpose you know of something beyond entertainment you know, that's why he was booked as the final act on the band. So that's why he was, you know, that
0: became the blueprint mm. for Live Aid. And I think that and and people and still talk about it now, don't they? So. And he's when's he about... going to get back to writing? <laughs> and he wrote oh, that When he meets another 18 year old girl. Yeah.
3: He wrote that handful of songs. I interviewed Roger McGuinn, uh, who was a big friend of theirs at the time. Roger McGuinn said that at that time, he said uh, Dylan had done it because he was inspired by her, but also because he, he wanted to impress her. He wanted her approval. So the impl- implication being, he would never have written those songs if he hadn't been going out with Susie Rotello. And I think she deserves some credit. Absolutely. I think that's an astonishing thing. It's changed our view of pop music. Pop music is now something that's capable of altering uh, the way people think. It's not just entertainment. You know, it could change the world. And I think that's largely see with that girl. I think
1: it's probably... That's a my lot, theory. Yeah, there's a lot probably a lot of people who have written music because of girls, because of a significant woman in their life. Of yeah, God. I'm and sure. Not on the same leave as Bob Dylan, but I just thought about, you know, the band Suede. You know, just, um, Brett Anderson will, you know, basically Justine Fishman was in his band, she left. He was so upset about this. He was like, I'm going to make this band really, really good and write different songs and do all this stuff. And that's when Suede became the Suede people now. You know, it's a, it's a different sort of impetus, but it was a girl at the heart of
0: it. There's a additional significance in this in that that's probably his best-known album cover, isn't it? Yeah, I because think it is. that's a bit of theatre, isn't it? Yeah. It's not just I've got a girlfriend, it's I've got a girlfriend who's gonna be on the cover of my album. And they were they were I, I read an old interview with her. Because she just died died a few years she ago. She did, yeah. And um and she said it was an incredibly snowy day, it was really cold. She's bundled up, she's got a, a coat on, she's holding on to him because she's cold. He's he's wearing a very thin suede jacket. Mm. He was shivering, but she said image was absolutely everything.
1: And And she's looking at you, isn't she, as well? She's looking at you going, look what I've got.
0: (laughs) I I suppose so. also incredible that the
3: record company allowed him to be on the cover with his girlfriend because you had to look available, didn't you? So it's it's, it's pretty
0: astonishing to let him do that. I suppose so, but it established that image and then... Of course, it was all over within six months, wasn't it, or something like that? Well, the relationship, no, it's kind of on and off for three years. Before oh, right. he, uh, he
3: slipped off with, um,
0: with Joe by his went down very badly. And of course, her, her mum and sister absolutely detested him. And he wrote a song, Ballad in Plain D, which yeah. is the most appalling piece of character assassination of, uh, in musical form that you'll ever hear. Which he does regret, though. Does he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, how
3: would you feel if your if your daughter brought home a pop star and said, "I'm going out with an <laughs> aspiring
0: pop star"? I mean, it's going to lead to um, misery. Surely, is going to be welcome. <laughs> Knowing what I know about aspiring pop stars, I would I, I would be horrified. Yeah,
2: <laughs>
0: frankly, because quite simply, they are utterly career obsessed. Yeah, as he was, wasn't he? Because She was cast aside quite soon afterwards when he got Joan Byers and it was something else. He he wanted to move on. She was immensely useful to him at the time. But you could argue that you have to be career-obsessed in order to be successful. I would. If you don't concentrate on 150%, you're not going to make it, are you? How would you feel, Jude, if your son came home and said, (laughs) my girlfriend, she's... You've well, got a session on six music. My
1: husband is in a couple of bands, so I'm sort of that girl. Um, you know, a couple of bands that you know by any kind of terms are you know unsuccessful. But you know, been on, he's been in one band who they were play-listed on six music. They went on a tour. It was very exciting. This is when my our son was a little baby, so his timing was a bit off. Um, but um, he does other stuff. He, you know, we pay the mortgage; it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, I think yeah, if he did come. Mm, yeah, I've, I've met enough of them now.
2: I think I'd be more concerned if my son wanted to be a musician than if he was dating one. Oh, right, OK. Yeah. Do you not think anything where your sense of self-worth is so reliant on what an audience thinks of you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely. Yeah. As, as opposed to broadcasting. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want him to no, do that either. <laughs> no broadcaster ever looks at their ratings and thinks, my God, I'm becoming less popular, you know, I'm going to worry about it. But look, th- another theory, uh, this is from Dave's
0: book, is that, well, it's the title of the book, actually, is so that nothing in pop is real. Well, so yeah. what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, this started, with, obviously, the, the title of the book comes from J- uh, John Lennon's line in Strawberry Fields Forever. You know, n- nothing is real. And it just struck me that popular music is almost alone among the arts, if we can call it that, is utterly obsessed with whether things are real or not. Because... Our interest in music, in a kind of rock music, is different from jazz music and classical music in that you, you simultaneously kind of appreciate the music and also you make some judgment about whether the musician is worthy of your kind of loyalty, mm. worthy of getting behind them. And, uh, and if you trace this idea back you know, a good example of where it starts is, uh, is Lead Belly, we are looking at a picture of there. So Lead Belly is discovered by John Lomax, the folklorist who's, who's going round America um, in the 30s and the 40s trying to record what he sees as real music. And real music, he thinks, can only be played by real people i.e. not professional entertainers. He doesn't think Broadway music is real music. He thinks that stuff's driving out real music because radio has come along and is, is, is poisoning the well. And so when Led Belly comes out of... He, he records Lead Belly in, in Angola uh, Penitentiary. And um, when Lead Belly, who's serving time for murder, eventually comes out, he contacts John Lomax... And he tours with John Lomax, doing kind of almost live demonstrations of folkloric art, you know. And he's he's treated in all the papers as he goes along. As um, a huge part of his appeal is he's real. He's he's a real murderer come and be in a room with a real murderer while he, he sings some music. So, this is the, so he, he makes records between homicides or yes, something. Yes, that's right. And, yeah. and, a, and obviously Lomax, he wasn't necessarily kind of obsessed with making a lot of money, but he was trying to make a living. This is... What he, d- he realised about Lead Belly is that somebody who comes from a really kind of underprivileged background, a really violent past and so forth is immensely enthralling to people who don't come from that kind of background. So he was, he was doing his demonstrations to kind of rooms full of quite comfortably off-white academics, you know. And they liked the idea of a, a prisoner being in their midst. And Lomax continued doing this throughout his career. There's a fascinating um, recording of him in a hotel room in Georgia with Bly Willie McTell And... Uh, But he's getting Blind Willie's pretty much singing all all these songs. And you can hear them talking in between between performances. And uh, Lomax keeps going, have you got any complaining songs? And Blind Willie kind of pretends he doesn't know what he's talking about. He says, you know, songs about... You know, how hard the white man treats the Negro and all this kind of stuff. And Blind Willie just is not having any. And actually... uh, instead plays him his new composition, which is a song about Edward Seventh and Mrs. Simpson. No tapping hit. Well, you know, but it's the idea that kind of, you know, John Lomax has gone in there looking for a certain kind of music, you know. And, and what he found is a lot of these guys, they played all kinds of music, you know, and they were quite keen on all kinds of music. And so, you know, it's, a very, it's just a very strong idea, isn't it? And and Bob Dylan, who we've talked about already, you know, if you look at the way Bob Dylan presented himself on those early albums, particularly on the covers, he presented himself as a kind of son of the soil, as a, as a working man. You know, he didn't present himself like Tony Bennett or Frank Sinatra or anybody like that. And uh, it fascinates me because, you know, what does Bob Dylan... Bruce Springsteen and John Lennon got in common. None of them work. ever did a hand's turn of work <laughs> in their lives. Yeah. Their whole careers were dedicated to avoiding doing anything that the working man ever had to do. You know, I know more about you know. You worked on the Christmas Post. Yeah. You probably know about the work more about the working man's life than Bruce Springsteen. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he got it all from John Steinbeck. You know, yeah. um, so. You know, it fascinates me that whole idea of, that, that that people like the idea of pop music being real, and the Nirvana <laughs> Unplugged thing, which is from when I suppose in the nineties, isn't it? 93. It struck
1: me. When is it, Jude? Ninety-three. Ninety-three.
0: Yeah. Uh, oh, I love. I love that. Record.
1: Unplugged. I
0: like that. that record,
1: but Unplugged—the
0: whole idea of Unplugged—is mm. further evidence of our obsession with is it real? It's. Yes. Let's take all these groups who were really like with all their equipment and their dancers and their lights and let's take it all
1: away. It's interesting. Like, I am um, many things. I am also the folk correspondent for The Guardian. That's how cool I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, guys. Um, so, um, is it, but which has been an interesting gig. I do a monthly column and I'm somebody who, you know, loves techno. I love crazy electronic music. I love Bananarama. You know, I'm not a traditional folk person. I think... There might be people in that community who might think, you know, who's this young upstart um, uh, doing this column? But um, I heard Dave's um, uh, Radio 3 essay about Lead Belly, and I wasn't aware of this. It's so interesting. Um, What I find is, you know, you think of the, the titans of folk music, Ewan McCall. He wasn't called Ewan McCall. That was a persona. The finger in the ear thing was a bit of him developing a persona. The critics group who were surrounded him was developing a persona. Um you also get people like the singer Shirley Collins, who I love. And she is but she as all but you know, um you you sing as plainly as possible to get the stories across. And I get that. You know, you want to get these old songs to be delivered to a new audience in a new way. But she's not against um, you know, young people maybe singing it in their own accents or doing things like that. But um yes, um it's interesting when you the people that um, John Lomax and you, McCall, kind of.
3: Don't you wonder sometimes if people like Bob Dylan uh, and maybe you, McCall, or, or uh, you know Iggy Pop or, or Bowie would have ever had any success if, if the internet had been around at the time? Because they said, yeah. "I am this amazing creation." We go, "No, no you're, you're not." not. <laughs> There's a picture of you at school. Yeah, that's no. not your name. You know, <laughs> I don't know. But we we have a don't we we have a belief we want we a desire to believe in things that are often completely manufactured.
2: Like I think when you're younger it really matters and then the older you get the the more you realise it's completely Unimportant. Thinking about Iggy Pop, there must be days when Iggy Pop is about to go on stage and he thinks, oh, "I really don't want to bleed today. I really really like to not have to apply plasters after the gig." And it's it's just a bit of theatrics, isn't it? Sometimes. I mean, sometimes I'm sure he's in the moment, and that's how he's experiencing that gig. But I'm sure a lot of the time it's like, "Well, here we go again. This is what people want to see."
1: Bob Dylan doesn't care anymore, does he? You know, it's interesting that. You know, people got so angry when that Christmas record came out how dare he make you know do a video dressed as Father Christmas it's, I love Must Be Santa it's great I do I, like it. I yeah. like it as
0: well but Bob in it, Bob Dylan's really interesting case of this because um, Joni Mitchell said um, interviewed him about 10 years ago and talking about the difficulty of continuing to make music in the 70s 60s whatever and she said it's alright for Bob but he has that guy to sing the songs for him And so what she meant was that Bob Dylan invented Bob Dylan as a character in about 1962. And he's done it ever since. Mm. You know, it's like Marlon Brando invented a persona. Jack Nicholson has been that character in every film since Easy Rider, hasn't he?
1: I should mention something that Dave and I were talking about earlier, which is um, I got a tweet last night. or was the night before I texted you about it. Um, I get I wrote a blog in 2007 when I was just uh, early stages of freelancing for the Guardian who I still write for um about how Jeff Buckley was overrated admittedly the column was slightly I was trying to be a bit provocative a bit yeah. you know edgy as you'd say <laughs> um but I'm I most of the piece are saying I I saw him at Glastonbury at the age of 17 and I fell in love you know as 17 year old girl's do um with uh, musicians um, but, you know, after, you know, going through his music, you know, there's, there's a lot of it that's overrated, overblown. He really created a persona and all this kind of stuff. Admittedly, this was published like the anniversary of his death, which is probably not the right time to do it. <laughs> oh. um, but, um, and I do regret that, um, but um, I still get tweets in the middle of the night American time from really angry, sensitive, authentic men. Um, how, you know, and they always refer to Jeff... You know, as if he's he's their friend. Um, I was yeah. I had a tweet. Uh, your whack ass article about Jeff Buckley. You know, your cursed collection of words. It's 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 there in the internet. Um, from the, uh, the other night. I just, I always plan to say, I wish I'd written the, this bloody article. You know. Um, but um, I say he's good in it. I say he's good in it. But you know. Um,
3: but maybe the only thing that matters. is that And then I just don't
1: apply ever anymore because that way madness lies.
3: Maybe all that matters is people's reaction to this stuff is real. I mean, you may be looking at all, all, all live performances is a kind of fiction.
1: Isn't Jeff it? was real, the, the, though. He had a song called So Real. He was really real. He <laughs> was really real. That's really
3: real. Yeah. Well, Bruce Springsteen. And he died, obviously. You, young, you make the point, the point that he died. The yeah. Bruce Springsteen, you know, it takes as much trouble to, to kind of dress
0: down and be a kind of regular well, the, point, guy, I mean, the contrast on, with Beyonce and Bruce Springsteen, yeah. you know, is Beyonce's fabulously glamorised and loads of dancers and so forth. Bruce Springsteen is fabulously glamorised oh, in a yeah. very different way. Different way. <laughs> you know. But the, the same, same amount of thought goes into that.
3: Did you read, there was yeah. a
2: huge piece in the, I think it was in the New Yorker or New York magazine before he went on tour a few years ago and the, the journalist got to sit on and the, in on the rehearsals and even the kind of ad-libs to the crowd was scripted. He was oh, practising yeah. all that stuff.
3: Well, I, mean, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm afraid to say Brian Wilson. I once stood behind uh, him quite recently and, and he has these things that look like monitors either side yeah. of his keyboard. And they're actually
2: scrolling auto cues telling him
3: what to say. I mean, so you know, there's, there's not a
2: lot of spontaneity. I remember, there. I don't want to make everything about the Beatles, but I remember seeing McCartney at the... I was working at the Isle of Wight Festival a few years ago and he, he was playing and there was this one moment in the concert where he played three or four songs and then he took his jacket off and he's just standing there he's got braces on and he's just sort of taking it and he's looking at this sea of people i don't know 50 60,000 whatever it was and he, he says god i just i just want to take this in for a minute actually and the crowd are going nuts thank god to think that you're at that stage in your career and and during a performance you can be overwhelmed like that about a week later, he yeah. did a gig, did a gig <laughs> I in my park Exact same part, part, part of the show. I'm going to take Don't a moment comes here. comes off. Yeah. yeah, and he's like, comes off. just going to take a moment take a here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: But <laughs> you see, that. if you went to see a comedian, you'd completely accept. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the same material
2: every night. Yes. No, it's a great bit of theatrics, yes, isn't is, it? Yeah. Barbara Streisand, I think, um, has her tour manager. I think we might have talked about this before. Um, whichever city she's playing in, um, the tour manager has to find out the name of the best restaurant in town. Yeah. and the best dish on the menu. So that is a certain part of the gig. She's there on the queue. Well, it's great to be here in uh, Manchester. I had a, a fantastic meal at Topper G. Joe's earlier on. I mean, yeah. isn't that linguine fantastic? <laughs> that's uh, great. Right. Yeah.
0: That's brilliant.
3: Yeah. And people are convinced by this. Yeah, right? yeah. Astonishing. Well, look, on the subject of, uh, of Dylan having someone to sing his songs for him, our next, uh, our next theory is a Jude Rogers theory. And it is that the best pop singers can't sing. This Do you is elaborate. On so this, this is an
1: argument I've had for a long time with Eamon Ford, who old mag- Word Magazine um, readers and podcast listeners may remember. Northern Irish accents quite hard to understand. You have to zone into Um we, have, we always argue about this, particularly with Neil Tennant of the Petra Boys. There, um, about how you know. Um, I don't get it, why you like the Petch Boys so much. He just can't sing. He can be out of tune. He, His voice wavers, all this stuff. Admittedly, his voice has improved over the years, and he has had singing lessons, latterly, when I interviewed him once. He was talking about that. Um, but I think the, my favourite pop singers, I've realised, are the people who make mistakes quite often or are really trying to do something but don't quite get it right. You know, that's what character is. Um, the first... Um, I think the first pop song that really, really moved me when I was little was Suburbia by the Petra Boys. You know, I knew my my mum would play the Beatles and I knew other songs, but I remember watching Top of the Pops and they did Suburbia on it. And just, you know, and um, that was a song he actually does sing most of, because obviously you have West End girls and he's doing this sort of spoken word, you know, slightly rap influenced, you know, throwing together different ideas. Um, but he's actually singing you know, and that chorus let's take a ride down um, with the dogs the suburbia and it kind of wavers a bit and it goes all over the place but it speaks of that kind of suburban environment that and it made me think a little bit you know, I was a very earnest kind of book reading kid and it really spoke to me about the kind of environment I was from where I lived um, and ever since you know his voice is not classically beautiful but it's just so amazingly characterful um, somebody I've always liked as well as Sarah Cracknell from Saint Etienne. Quite often she can't hit the notes, you know. Um, but um when she first came along and sang with Saint Etienne, you have songs like Nothing Can Stop Us Now, and she's singing, you know, I've never felt so good, I've never felt so strong, and her voice is not quite getting the note, but it's it's almost like a you were, you know, the ordinary person in your bedroom wanted to be, you know, she looks nice, she's very beautiful, very glamorous but there's that element of ordinariness about yeah. it. But that, and that pop makes, music it yeah. it makes it unthreatening. Well, I could sing. If she can exactly. sing, I could sing. But So pop music, you know, I've always said it's about, uh, you know, I am managing to get the extraordinary out of very ordinary situations or people from very ordinary backgrounds. Um, you know, she's from, well, she's not particularly from an ordinary background. But said a kind of, um, you know, Bob Stanley and Pete Wigg's from Croydon they're quite ordinary suburban blokes I'm sure this is a Mark Ellen theory that might have been it was a word magazine office theory anyway about the best bands live just that little bit too far from the big city so you've got to go in so Mm. it's just that far away um, you know, Neil Tennant's from the North and mm. you know when I, when I remember finding out where Neil Tennant was from like about three or four was it to love the Petro Boys going he's not from there you know kind of, because he just seems like this very different larger than life character but you know there's some other brilliant pop singers you know Shane McGowan he, he can't stand up half the time you know he's got a very <laughs> characterful voice But um, Bernard you, you, Sumner Bernard, Sum, Bernard Sumner as well you know one of my favourite songs is by them is Your Silent Face um, which is a song that you know, he's, he's, it's not about his voice and about his delivery. Well, it is, but it is. I've it, scribbled you know. a few
3: down here. Oh, look, go people on, go people on. who can't sing in a bad way. Keith Richards, Madonna, Mick Jones of The Clash, Pete oh. Wiley sorry it's, yes. people who can't it's sing nice. but in a good way Shane McGowan I totally agree with you Jonathan Richman yes. uh, Beefheart and Tom Waits who actually yeah. are an act but they're they, they, a kind of non-singing act but there's no people who have an ordinariness Kelly Willis and Carole King Carole mm. King has an ordinary she's not a spectacular mm. there's a whole raft of people who can sing but they sing in an incredibly technical way where all you can do is admire them Beyonce Whitney Houston Rufus Wainwright Annie Lennox people who just they're not really very moving but there's, you just think but they clearly can sing.
0: And the
1: Rufus
3: love the lot, win,
0: is the classic case. Really, really. There's yeah. His father, lovable voice. Rufus, better voice, not lovable. Not no. Lovable. There's Martha, a, sister,
1: much, Martha, his sister, much better, more character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah.
2: a David Byrne quote about the the better the technically better the voice, the, the more difficult it is to believe it.
3: That, I think yeah, that's yeah. a really good yeah, point. Yeah. Because you get to the point where all you're doing is just admiring a performance. Yeah. You know? I, mean, like, I think I think there are just a few singers who really can sing but are also incredibly moving. Joni Mitchell's one, I think. Amy Winehouse, uh, Jeff Buckley, I think. You
1: know, really oh, can sing. But did you tweet movie. me the other night, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: and he's real. He's for real as well. Well, again, going back to Jude's point about Jeff Buckley, when she was in touch with him today, was Jeff Buckley overrated? Yes. And I was one of the people who over- <laughs> <I saw your laughs> yeah, you were. That's all your fault. One of the very few people who ever interviewed him. But I did overrate him, like mad. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, well, you now, did. I That's haven't what happened. been able That's to, really listen to it for We ten all years. get excited, so don't good. we? Yeah. Yeah. I He's think
1: good. basically in this cu- the, the the culture we live in now, where which you know I know X Factor doesn't have the power that it has that it used to have in society like ten years ago. You know this idea that you know a singer is goes up on a stage and this idea that if they hit a high note. And I'm not talking about, like, Bill Withers in A Lovely Day, which is amazing, but just, like, I can do this melisma and I can hold this no for, It's just clapping. It's like somebody winning the 100-metre sprint yeah, or yeah, something. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, Yeah.
3: it
0: is. We anyway. have,
3: uh, we have uh, I think, a couple more theories here, if I can get this to work. Oh, and this is the Dave Edmuth. You shouldn't play pop songs. Before. Yeah, this
0: is mine. This is mine. And, um, and I, I, I could be in danger of upsetting people here, actually. I don't
1: agree with this. Okay, well,
0: that's fine. And it's, you know, I suppose my, my antipathy starts with, I think there's a picture of uh, uh, of, uh, of Elton John doing <laughs> Candle in the Wind at, uh, at Diana's funeral. And it struck me, led of things, you know, that, that kind of, we're an increasingly secular society, obviously, but footballers have never been more likely to point at the sky when they score a goal <laughs> nowadays, you know so we have we have the kind of forms of religious observance yeah. with with none of the uh, none of the basic matter and uh, and i think what happens in the introduction of pop songs in funerals is you get one of the key features of pop music which is individualism introduced into a ceremony that really is not about individualism at all you know and uh, you know, the, I, I I looked into the kind of cooperative funeral services list of the most requested songs at funerals nowadays, and of course it's things like "My Way," you know, or, or Robbie Angels. Williams Robbie Williams, Williams' "Angels," always looking at the right side of life, which is I remember seeing that at um, at uh, Graham Chapman's memorial service, and I thought that was amazing then, but now it's absolutely standard standard. standard. everywhere but my way the idea that you you, that you have my way played at a funeral because my way is is a song all about building up your part in life hasn't it you know what i mean it's i matter more than anybody (laughs) else i have powers more than anybody else and a funeral is all about saying, no, you don't, mate, because you're in the box
2: and we're all out here,
0: you know? And and the idea also, of... It sounds like you're trying to change people's perception of you after well, the great. You, know. you then, you know, if you've chosen... And, I mean, there may be people in this room who've, who've written down the piece of paper somewhere that they liked... They'd like, I don't know, Roy Harper's when an old cricketer leaves the crease. <laughs> played at their funeral. And, and I can't help but think that if, you fu- that if you project forward to the funeral, which you won't be at, okay, there'll be at least a significant number of people in that church or place going, what the fuck
1: is that?
0: <laughs> or the other half are going to be going, oh, God, this that thing of he always he wanted to play the this all the time, and he's still trying to make us like it. Now. Absolutely, <laughs> it's too late. That was the point. That was my point. You know that uh, that, um, and I. I just think I, this can't go on. You know, at the rate that it's going <laughs> at the moment, because you know, I, I went to all my grand, my parents and grandparents' generations funeral, and abide with me was about as egotistical as it got. You know what I mean. And the
2: message of those funerals was, we're all the same. I definitely want a, a pop song well a, a rock song at my funeral sorry
0: go on have you th- yeah. have
2: decided what it is yeah I've th- thought about it I'd like um, Atmosphere by Joy Division <laughs> and because I don't want it to be celebratory at all my funeral I want people to be really, really miserable really yeah. you've gone. yeah 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 very much so and even to the extent that I'd like druids carrying big black and white pictures on me mm. like in the Anton <laughs> band video I mean I, I just think you know just in case there's not enough grief that might just pull some strings it would be <laughs> be awful to look down from the clouds and see a whole lot of people having a brilliant child, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Judy, is there
3: a record that you've heard that at a funeral that works, or, or yes,
1: what you think? Um, it's funny because I sort of do agree with Dave, you know, and I, I think people you just do think about these things these days, and hopefully it's a while off for me. But kind of, um, I thought of an instrumental piece of music I might like, but you know, I've not put it in my will or anything. Um, I've been to two funerals the last couple of years which have changed my perception towards it because I would have been with Dave. And I appreciate that lots of people aren't religious anymore, so that might be why they don't want to bide with me, because it seems disingenuous. And I've been to funerals that are very religious, people weren't religious, and it always feels a bit peculiar. But I went to the funeral of my brother's mother-in-law, um, who had been ill for quite some time and knew she was dying and planned what she wanted to have, with her daughters, who had um, looked after through a you know, long illness. And I, we, I didn't know what it was going to be. We were at this funeral. You know, it was very sad. It was a long time coming. And... Her daughters brought her in. They wanted to carry the coffin in and all this kind of stuff. And then they played together in Electric Dreams. And good God. Which, which No, it sounds weird. It sounds weird. But it's a song. If you listen to the lyrics, it is just... I can't even talk about it now. It was a song... Because they, they, she really used to love... It's just the Human League yeah, 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 yeah. We'll always be together, okay. however far it Georgia seems. We'll one. always be together. Georgia together. But the... la 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 Da-la-la. It started, I was like... First of all, I did think, Dave, what the fuck is this? What's going on? Yeah. But then you listen to the lyrics, and it's a song that actually was helping her girls get through that day. Really? And that's, she wanted them to kind of feel that she was there with them then. I thought that was actually really touching. I can't hear... If it ever comes on now, I'm in floods of tears. It's you know. But listen to the lyrics of that later. They, it's about... Thinking, you know, I'm I am always with you. Also, I would never be able really? to
0: get over the shock of first hearing you.
1: Yeah, it was. It was <laughs> shocking. <laughs> and if Mark was
0: anywhere near me, I mean, we'd be looking at each other. Like,
1: oh, yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> To be honest, I think, think
0: Philoki with his amazing long time <laughs> haircut.
1: Not be. The she picture. wasn't a per- kind of person who had. You know, she wasn't like a big muso or anything like this. It was just a song that she liked, and there weren't musers in the audience. It wasn't, you know, Word Magazine office there. It was. Really unexpected, but it was a, a moment between three three women that, that they shared, and that was really lovely. I also went to the funeral recently of somebody who was a music journalist who died quite young, um, and it was a very small memorial service, and he had done, he'd had he written something that he wanted to be read at, which was very touching and simple, and, and he was not somebody who would, would ever big himself up. And at the end of the funeral, they just played his favourite song, which was Pressure Drop by Two to the Matles," and it was lovely, because it's such a simple, oh, joyous crazy. song. And it was just... A lovely moment at the end of it, and that didn't feel. This is weird.
0: So, what are you having, Mark?
1: <laughs> oh, I'm
3: heading
0: for. No, at your funeral, I want to know. my
3: funeral, Well, no, I don't know. The any song I've heard that really worked. I agree. I think most pop music. The problem is that you know, I've heard, I've heard um, in my life by the Beatles. I've heard um, "Alleluia" by Jeff Buckley. Neither of those work at no. all. They don't work mainly because they're songs about romances actually, and that becomes kind of embarrassing and it's it's awkward. The only song I've ever heard that really worked actually, which is it's going to sound a bit pretentious, but it was it was a French song by uh, Charles Trenet called La Mer. Oh, Do you yeah. know La Mer? Yeah, yeah. Da, 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 you know, I didn't see how many words I know. I've run <laughs> that after La Mer. I've and blah, um, blah, blah, blah. and I think it's really really good because it's in French and therefore most people can't understand it. And even if they could yeah. understand it, it's actually a very happy song about Trenet looking out the window of a train. And looking at the, at the sea and the sky and yeah. seeing how they meet up. And so you're having La Mer, are you? I think pro- I'm going to have La Mer. Yeah, I think there's some of that.
0: I have to say, when Mark and I, ever either of us goes to a funeral, a memorial service, we always report back to each other afterwards. The, what the entertainment was like, and so forth. And at, the, <laughs> and at the end, we all say the same thing: "Can't wait for yours. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, bring it on! <laughs> now we, know, it's like, now we uh, know. Now we know. Now we know. This is uh, this is, uh, this is uh, we got two to go. Je- Jeff's uh, um, Jeff's um, uh, theory is that all live albums are rubbish. Kind
2: of. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. S- slightly condensed version of the already. Theory. He's having second thought. No, 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 no. <laughs> what, my, what my actual theory is is that the The handful of good live albums like False in Prison or The Who Live at Leeds. Don't cancel out just how bad most live recordings are. And I say this from the perspective of somebody who every year would have to play out the best of that year's festival season on the radio. And they were just sort of terrible versions. Like even legendary bands like Fleetwood Mac or whoever, they'd be like really ropey, poorly sung versions. They wouldn't be tidied up and not in a charming way either just in a real raggedy messy way and i don't think anybody was thinking oh i really like hearing this rather than the version that i know I th- and and uh, very th- the applause doesn't ad- i think there are some good live albums i mean obviously you know the the keith jarrett Colm concert like that that's a brilliant example of a live recording but on balance there are so many bad ones they're usually just ways of artists fulfilling a contractual Obligation that uh, I, I think, or, can... pl- or preying upon the completists who absolutely have to have everything. Yeah, a- absolutely, yeah. and um, you yeah, know even that Nirvana um, unplugged album, which I really like the versions on that album, but I, c- I could do without audience applause. That doesn't add anything to it for me. So that's that's my theory.
1: I was going to say about the last waltz, and because I was thinking of this when the Staple Singers um, come on to the wait, but I, I was reading about that Ode, t- and it was overdubbed. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing is real. Nothing is real, man. Yeah. <laughs> that all man. I was
2: shocked. <laughs> that happens all the time. Um, at the radio station I work for, they, some huge, huge sort of um, uh, um, world-famous band, they sent somebody off to record a concert of theirs somewhere elsewhere in Europe. And the recording was so bad that the producer, as an act of kindness, uh, went and took it into a studio and played piano over the top of it. Because <laughs> the front man was doing such a lousy job of playing and singing at the same time on stage because, you know, he's putting on a show. And even, even the Beatles at Shea Stadium, if you've heard that, I mean, that wasn't recorded at Shea Stadium. No. It was done in a studio in Wembley but or somewhere. They, in, it does break def- my heart.
0: In defence of live albums, they provide an enormous amount of excitement for about two days after you buy them. <laughs> <laughs> because you, you, you tend to buy them when you're 18, 19 or whatever, and it's your favourite group, and they've finally recorded it. So you can do which is the thing that really keeps rock and roll going, which is 18-year-old boys going into rooms, pulling the curtains and pretending to be...
3: <laughs> no, pretending
0: to be, to be the singer was, or I whatever. Mean, Bob Marley's live album at the Lyceum was pr- pretty much made his
3: career there, didn't
0: it? Oh, absolutely.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing. I'm not it's...
2: saying there aren't exceptions. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. Can I just say one thing about Live Elite? Somebody was telling me recently, if you're familiar with that record, they they made it a facsimile of a bootleg with kind of contracts and letters inside and somebody was telling me that they bought a copy in whenever it came out 1970 I think and looked inside and thought oh my god they've included these by mistake <laughs> so wrote to the record company and said we're giving you your documents back because you've you've put them inside my so of Live <laughs> That's how people were in those days. <laughs> That's wonderful. But I think it's, no, it's not a all. bad point, Jeff, at all. It's not a bad point.
3: No, it's fair. And uh, we're back to... Um, Finally. Uh, the, the last one, which, again, Dave writes about very entertainingly in his book, which is that... And I've had some experience with this recently, which I might mention because <laughs> I had to DJ at a wedding with my eldest son. Mm-hmm. But you're saying you can only play dead certs at a wedding disco.
0: Yeah, well, because I think if if you're called upon to play records for a a, a group of people like, such as might be found at the wedding, who are, you know, from all kinds of places, the temptation to slip in something intriguing should always, always, always be resisted. Yeah. And the more you know about popular music, the more you feel that temptation. You know? And so... My view about wedding discos... You know, they're, they're, they're a very emotional occasion... ...made more emotion by the presence of alcohol... ...and, you know, two families who don't know each other. <laughs> so if anything's going to kick off, it'll kick off at a <laughs> yeah, wedding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I oh, think as you, you look you to out,
1: weddings where there have been fights or something, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as you look
0: out, I think there are three constituencies at a wedding. There are the, the kind of... The young men who are looking sneeringly at the DJ and wondering who he or she is going to be up to it. <laughs> there are the young women who are getting round the Prosecco and so forth. <laughs> and then there are the kind of... The great middle-aged anonymous... <laughs> Uncles and aunts. Uncles and aunts yeah, and almost. absolutely everybody else. And my view is, don't try and please the first group because you won't win.
1: Yeah.
0: Don't try and please the second group because you won't win. Please the third group... If you can get the middle-aged onto the, onto the dance floor, the women will launch in there as well. Yeah. And once the women are there, the blokes will inevitably <laughs> follow after. So it's dead certs of wedding discos, is my, is my view. Give us, give us some of the songs that you think well, never fail. It's, uh, it's things like Dancing Queen. It's things like House of Pain, you know, Jump Around. Yeah. It's Dancing in the Dark by Bruce Springsteen. It's Jean Genie. It's stuff, blindingly obvious stuff like that, is what works. But never submit to the temptation. No. Chucking anything intriguing,
2: Which,
3: Jeff, you on may have you. done because you said earlier on that it was a terrible. You had a terrible experience DJing at a, yeah, a, at a wedding. Yeah,
2: I, I was a mobile dis, uh, mobile DJ for a while, and uh, it, it would often go poorly for me. And it was usually when people <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> it, 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 usually when people sort of prescribed what they wanted to hear. So this was the early nineties, and a lot of people would say, "Oh, you know, can you?" Um, you play Pixies or whatever it would be, which I would be happy to play. But it's that exact same thing. Your auntie's not going to dance to it. No. And then, you know, when you play that music, it sort of clears everybody off the dance floor. You and your mates from the school might be dancing to it, but that's only sort of four or five people. And then you're angry at the DJ because you think they're doing a bad job. Yes. Because, and, and the the worst one I ever had, and I've sort of tried for, for the best, well, more than two decades now to work out what happened. Um... I did this one disco at Macclesfield Liberal Club, which is a horrible <laughs> venue because it was lots of stairs for getting the uh, getting your kit up, and um, nobody danced all night. And uh, like, I was trying all you know the big hitters like the sort of things you've just named, or things from Greece or Stevie Wonder, Superstition, and and nobody was dancing to to anything. And then. I don't know why or what insp- I put on REM, Losing My Religion. The dance floor filled up every generation. <laughs> and, you know, this, this, this wasn't, it's not, wasn't quite the standard that it is now, Losing My Religion. It was a bit newer at the time. So I thought, OK, I'll, I'll follow it with something similar. Um, I forget what it would have been, Crowded House or whatever they were playing on the radio alongside REM at the time. Dance floor emptied. Nobody oh, else danced all night. I mean, I tried everything. I tried everything, and that was the only record that people danced to. And at the end of the evening, I was so embarrassed that I squatted down on the floor <laughs> behind my DJ deck and listened for the room to empty before I stood up because yeah. I couldn't look any of those guests in the eye. Yeah. Did
1: you think you were on candid camera? It was like the that? strangest thing. That's like, really
2: why that record? I mean, it's not even a great song to dance to.
1: No, it's really quite slow. Yeah. You,
2: what experience have you had of uh, um, records that work?
1: Um, records that work, uh, Heatwave, Martha Reeves and the Van yeah. Um When I got married, um, our first song was, you know, something deeply pretentious that meant something to us, and um, nobody danced to it, but it was really short. We just did this a bit awkwardly. And then put on Heatwave, and it was like, shh, yeah. Motown works. Yeah. Beatles don't work. No, no
3: Beatles, don't work. Um, Beatles don't work.
1: ABBA works. Uh, um, something
3: Waterloo else. by ABBA's the one.
1: Waterloo's oh, good. Yeah. I don't "Lay All Your Love on Me" yeah. works as well. Yeah. "Kids in America" is yeah. a great one because yeah. that—that get, guess my my mum will only usually dance when she's had three glasses of wine and a gin and tonic, but she will dance to "Kids in America." Um, but "Kids in America" always crowds it. But I always—I always find that you know the later you go in the evening, if the parents have, you know, they've they've gone home or whatever, you know, you put on stuff that's, you know, for you know people in their forties to fifties, you know, you. are you know, Push It by Salt and Pepper, which you played. Push It you, by we Salt and Pepper. Yeah, um, I just want to make the like point that. that I
3: played Push It by Salt and Pepper <laughs> at a recent wedding, so it well, uh, should make me impossibly cool. At my I'm wedding, hoping. a
1: really weird one that some of my friends played, this was very near the, the end of the evening, it was when we were going home, Dan and I were leaving, um, and there weren't many people left. But they played Being Boring by the Petra Boys, a very strange song to play at a wedding. But it was actually really perfect when we were leaving, it's, you know, a song about, you know, long friendships and all this kind of stuff I think to be honest my friends were DJing at that point just had given up All like I'll put <laughs> that on she dude likes that but that was actually really lovely but it's very dependent on the crowd but yeah, yeah um, Motown always yeah Oh, I hear your motel. I, yeah, I, 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 I want
3: to raise you. Twisting the Night Away by Sam Cooke. Oh, yeah. Absolutely God. classic. I might also say that Maybelline by Chuck Berry is great. The only problem oh, is it's yeah. Maybelline, Why Can't You Be True? Which is, which is sort of not quite right for a, for a, for a wedding I disco. That, I don't think
1: that matters, Heat though. Wave, After definitely. After the first dance, it doesn't no. matter. And my, my well,
3: you son, son and DJ pals, to talk about Tainted Love, Hey Ya Tainted by, Love, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey Crazy in Love by Beyonce, any big Stevie Wonder... Uh, the Love Cat by The Cure. Yes. Oh, yeah, Huge yeah. success. People love it. You can be slightly ironic. You know, people who don't really dance can dance to it. You know, <laughs> Get Down on It by Cool of the da- Gang. Uh, Walk This Way, 1999 by
0: Prince. Oh
1: my God.
3: And I Want to Dance again. with Somebody But I know, But hey, can, can I what just
0: about? throw in you should, yeah, one well. thing you should never play at a wedding, and people do?
1: Atmosphere by Joy Division.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> no, they play in the ceremony or for the first dance is When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy oh, Sledge. Because yeah. oh, yeah. if you listen to the lyrics, it's all about how you should never marry a woman yeah. who yeah. cheats on you. Yeah. And so the couple, you know, trundling around yeah. to the first time, don't realise what it is that well, they're. Isn't that true?
1: The one I love at REM, which I have seen as a 1st dance of wedding. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: So <laughs> yeah. that's lots of
0: things to avoid. Yeah.
3: All this um, wisdom <laughs> and entertainment
1: wisdom. <laughs> uh, it, it
3: can be found, uh, this erudition. And then to say, can be found in Dave's book, which is absolutely stupendous, I have to say. And um, it's called Nothing is Real. And uh, I believe it's out around now. <laughs> it is. is it, it is out. It's available. It, it is all. available. And I think uh, my job now is simply to thank the great Jeff Lloyd, the great
2: Jude Rogers,
3: yeah, and to thank David Hepworth. Do thank you. you so much.
0: Thanks, thank you for coming. Thank you. Beautiful. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. You've been listening to The Word Podcast. If you've enjoyed it, we would really appreciate it if you would take the time to rate it on iTunes. You can find many more Word Podcasts at wordpodcast.co.uk and if you'd like to come to one of our Word in Your Ear live events... Then you can find details at wiyelondon.com or just Google us.
2: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage.